0: chapter 10 is where we're going to be. So if you'd like to grab a Bible in the seat pockets in front of you, or if you brought yours, or if you're a child of technology, you can open up on your browser and put uh, Matthew chapter 10. And as we begin this morning, we're actually going to be in a bit of a transition. We've come out of the first teaching of Jesus, which are called discourses. Uh, We're now transitioning from the miracles that he just performed Chapters 8 and 9 were these 10 miracles that really validated his teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're getting ready to head into the second discourse. I've shared with you before that the gospel according to Matthew, there's actually five different teachings, and uh, if this is a little bit of free information, I didn't put it in the notes, but if you like this kind of thing, there are five uh, books of Moses, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience, also includes five discourses, which you can link up to each of the books of Moses. So this next um, uh, discourse is actually the missionary discourse, where Jesus sends his disciples out. He's going to name them as apostles. And the second book of the law is the Exodus, where God actually sends the children of Israel out, not just so they can merely have the promised land, but also so they can attract others To the kingdom. And so, interesting little food for thought as you work your way through the Bible and through Scripture. There's so many ways that the Old Testament is linked to the New Testament. But this transition really began back in Matthew chapter 9. At the end, where we were a couple weeks ago, Jesus was uh, imploring them to his disciples to pray, uh, for the harvest was plentiful, but the workers were few. And so what he said there was, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send workers in so that people might be saved. And so Jesus encourages his disciples to pray. Uh, Hopefully, if they're any kind of disciples at all, um, they prayed. They actually did what he asked them to do. And in doing so, we find now here in chapter 10, uh, he's answered their prayer. And as he does with us so often, they are the answer to their own prayer. So they prayed that workers might be sent out. What we see next is Jesus sending them out. So uh, that's where we're going to pick up today, and we're going to focus our time on verses 1 through 4. It doesn't seem like a lot of text, but I think there's a lot here for us uh, to gather and understand as we transition into the missionary discourse. So what he's going to do is he's going to pick from 12 disciples these men that would be apostles. So Jesus didn't have just merely 12 disciples. He had many people that followed him. That's what disciple means. A disciple is just a follower, and they are disciplined in his teaching. What's the root word in disciple? It's discipline. But the word apostle means one who is sent out. That's the literal translation. They are a sent out one. And so these twelve are being handpicked, selected by Jesus, to be sent out to share the gospel message. So to begin, I'm actually going to go to Luke chapter six, which is Luke's account of this same event in the Synoptic Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter six, verse twelve, he Jesus says, or, or Luke writes about Jesus. Now it came to pass in those days that he Jesus went to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. For them, he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. And so Jesus went away all night to pray. He spent all evening long in prayer about the selection of these 12 men. And so I bring that up uh, to just mention, uh, when's the last time when you had a really hard decision to make, something difficult going on in your life, uh, that you took it to the Lord in prayer? All night. (laughs) That you spent an entire evening Just laying down before the Lord. Say, Lord, what direction would you have me to go? And keep in mind, this is Jesus. This is the Son of God who goes up on the mountain to pray all night because this is such a big deal and such a big decision. And I want to encourage you in this that because Jesus did this, he was able to have great confidence, not in his own ability to select people, but in being in the will of the Father that taking things to the Lord all evening long in prayer, to to just pour into him, he can now operate with confidence that he selected the correct 12 men. Now then, let's get back to the text at hand, Matthew chapter 10. We're going to read these first four verses. And when he called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And now the names of the twelve apostles were these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Labias, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And so, as we begin here in verse 1, we see that Jesus, again, called out of the disciples these 12 apostles. But he did so in in an exact pattern. It's because uh, before they could become apostles, before they could be sent out, they must first be uh, disciples. They must first follow and listen to the teachings of Jesus before he's going to send them out to do the work of ministry. But then, sandwiched in the middle, before he sent them out... Notice with me what he does is he gives them power over unclean spirits. And so Jesus doesn't just send them out into the world to do the work of the ministry without first giving them power. The word in the Greek could also be translated authority. He gave them authority to do the same things that he was able to do, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. To, to make the blind see. And so he gives them these abilities. And, and so we see this take place. And what I'm, I'm, I recall back is one of my favorite sayings of Pastor Chuck Smith. Uh, Chuck, if you're able to take any of the books out there on the Calvary distinctives, he's the one that founded this verse-by-verse teaching Calvary Chapel movement in the mid-1960s. And he had this big, deep, booming voice. And he would say, Where God guides, God provides. That's exactly the point here. Where God guides, if he's going to send you out, he's going to provide the tools you need to be successful. And now, as we look at this, 12, this group of 12, um, throughout church history, I think there's been a little bit of mythology that's been put into these men. They, they've been called saints, right? We have St. Peter, St. James, St. John. There, there's all these great men of the Bible, and these are saints, Do you realize the definition of a saint is a sinner saved by grace? Do we have any sinners in here? No, don't raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. We have a whole room full of sinners, right? Do we have anyone in here, though, who's been saved by grace? Unmerited favor of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're a sinner and you've been saved by grace, congratulations, you're a saint. You came today to church to find out you are a saint, which is why in Colossians, as Paul is addressing the Colossian church, he says, I write this to the saints and the faithful brethren who are in Colossae, that the the men and the women of the church who believed in Jesus, who have been saved, are considered saints. And I'm saying that to say that these 12 men, the most remarkable thing we're going to see about them is that they were utterly unremarkable. They were, they were actually completely unremarkable, and we're going to go through them uh, this morning. And, and the reason for Jesus doing this, uh, I think we find in 1 Corinthians, is Paul is addressing the church there in Corinth. And, and I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, at verse 26. But as I go that way, I'm going to just remind you that the church in Corinth, uh, it, it's an awesome church. It's a mega church. They've got the best worship band, they've got lights, and they've got an unbelievable pastor. They probably even have a fog machine. I mean, what church isn't made better by a fog machine? I put this in the 2022 budget, in fact, for me to have a fog machine and for Jake to play Striper as I come out here on stage. A little to hell with the devil as I come up here to just rock out. This is the church in Corinth. I mean, they have got it going on, but but what Paul writes to them... It is this, in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, For you see that you're calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame those that are mighty. So what God actually has done is he's called the weak to actually show the strong where the real strength is. He's put to shame all these men that think they're so wise, that think they have going on. He's going to go, he's saying, Look, I'm going to show you how I get glory. I'm actually using weak people, weak minded, so that my glory can pour out on all the world around you. And now, as you hear me, this is going to make sense. Because if you talk to me after this message, you probably have said to yourself, He doesn't seem that intelligent. And you know what? You're right. That's true, because God uses the weak things to actually show off his strength. He uses the, those of us that have problems and we're cracked and we're broken vessels because when the vessel is broken, his glory can actually be uh, poured out. So it becomes obvious with, with these men, and yet, at the same time, I'm going to flip with one more spot as to why these are important individuals for us to look at today. Ephesians chapter twenty or chapter 2, verse 20. In speaking about the apostles, this is what Paul says. He says that this church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that the very foundation of the church was built upon these weak individuals. But verse 20 of Ephesians 2 doesn't stop there. There's a comma. And then he says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the reason the foundation is sturdy, the reason the foundation can stand, is because it starts with the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Now any masonry contractor back in that day would know that if you're going to start to build a house, the first thing they start off with is the cornerstone. Every line is laid off of it, every level is checked to make sure that it lines up, but it's locked together by the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus. And so if a church is to be successful and sturdy and withstand trials and tribulations, then it must be locked together in Christ. And this is going to be the case for these men. This is the most remarkable thing about them is that they are linked together in Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus goes to send these men out, we're going to see uh, that he he calls them and he organizes them in different groupings. And, and in fact, uh, you'll see that this The list of 12 names actually exists in several other places. It exists in the gospel according to Mark and in Luke and even in Acts. Now the one that's in Acts actually is a little different because the the last person, Judas, has already passed off the scene. So they've got another apostle that's inserted in there. But, but we have these lists. Does anybody else like lists, by the way? I, I don't, maybe it's a guy thing. I love lists. If you give me a list or a ranking, a top 10, top 100, I am all in. If it's football, basketball, it doesn't matter. I'm excited about lists for some reason. Even curling. You notice in the Winter Olympics, they've got that thing with stones and people with brooms. I'm excited to be on the top of that list. I, I don't even know if that's a sport, and I'm excited about it. So here we go. I'm excited about lists. We have a list here. Now, in these lists, each time, what you'll find is Peter is always listed first. He's the one that God designated as the leader of this group. And then also, oftentimes, we'll find that Jesus will pick two or three that will go along with one another. He'll group them together. So we'll see Peter, James, and John. Oftentimes, those are kind of the three that he takes different places, like the Mount of Transfiguration, or just a few weeks ago, we looked at the, the young girl that was healed. He only brought Peter, James, and John into the house. And so he groups them together, which uh, can cause us a little bit of indigestion because it, it feels like maybe there's some cliques. Maybe there's some groups that, that's kind of cliquish in this church, and yet uh, what we find is that, that birds of a feather flock together. And, and Jesus actually builds a church that has all these different individuals that seemingly are diverse, that they have all these, maybe could be little little clicky groups that can get together here and there, and yet, uh, in their diversity, they're actually unified. And that's really the Christian church being laid out there, that all of us have different giftings, different likes, dislikes, and some of us are just going to be naturally drawn to one another. It's going to make sense for us uh, to, to be together, to pal around, and yet... We are unified in this thing in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He goes to great detail to say that they have a diversity and yet they have unity in this very thing. That there are many parts and yet one body. That there are many body parts. There are eyes and ears and nose and throats. And right, if you go to an ENT doctor, you know that the ear, nose and throat are connected together. They are 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 interrelated groups, and yet they're all part of the same body. The foot doesn't have a whole lot to do with the nose, other than it carries the nose around from place to place, and yet it is a part of the body of Christ. And so that's the example that we're seeing here take place with these 12. Now, Jesus is going to send them out as missionaries in groups of two. That's what He tells us in Mark chapter 6 that these were sent out two by two, and so for today, we're going to look at them for the sake of time in pairs of two. We're going to begin with these first two. We've got uh, Peter or Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And so Simon is the first one we'll we'll look at. His name means, literally translated, hearing. And yet what we know about the life of uh, Peter the Apostle is that he struggled hearing. He did not hear very well. Oftentimes, he was hard-headed, which is perhaps why Jesus gives him a nickname. I love this about Jesus. He looks at this man named Simon, and he says, No longer shall you be called Simon, hearing, you shall be Petros, which means little stone. You're kind of a rockhead. And so I'm going to call you Rocky for short. Now everybody then calls him and knows him as Rocky. Right? Here's Simon, he, he's given this nickname, and he's known for being impulsive. Sometimes to the good, sometimes to the bad. He has his struggles. In Matthew uh, chapter 16, this is where Jesus is giving this uh, teaching there in an area called Dan in northern Israel. And he's talking about the, the future kingdom. And, and in that talk, he asks them a question. He says, who do men say that I am? And then he asks them a more direct question. He says, who do you say that I am? A question all of us need to answer, by the way. He says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being impulsive, he pipes right up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of God, the son of the living God. And Jesus actually compliments him. He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means son of Jonah. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood didn't tell this to you, but my father in heaven. And so we see him get this unbelievable compliment. And you know, for Peter, this brash fisherman guy, his chest is probably puffed up. He's like, you guys hear that? I'm blessed. Ha! <laughs> and then just a few moments later, as Jesus is going through his teaching and explaining how he's going to suffer and die for the entire world, Peter actually grabs him and pulls him off to the side and goes, hey, you need to cut it out talking about all that you dying stuff. Like, you need to just shut that thing down right now, Lord. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's the only guy in the Bible who in one verse, just a few verses earlier, he's called, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then just a few verses later, he's called Satan. So Peter's impulsive. He goes one way and the other. But he also has great faith sometimes. He has enough faith as Jesus is walking on the water to actually get out of the boat. Now we often will focus on the story of Peter walking on the water and say, yeah, but he he didn't keep his eye on Jesus. He took his eye off Jesus and he began to sink. But I would tell you there are 11 other dudes that didn't have the courage to get out of the boat. Peter's the only one that would get out of the boat and walk towards Jesus. He was also very brave at times. As Jesus is getting ready to be arrested in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's Roman guards all around. They've come to take Jesus away, to put him on trial. And Peter pulls out his broadsword, and he's ready to take on the entire Roman army for Jesus. He starts whacking away with his sword and accidentally cuts off, or maybe on purpose cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. I think he was actually aiming for the head, which is why he's a far better fisherman than he was a swordsman. But he cuts off this guy's ear. Like he is willing to defend Jesus to the death and take on the Roman army. And yet, just a few moments later, when Jesus is on trial at the high priest's house and he's out by the fire warming his hands, a little servant girl says, hey, aren't you a Galilean that's with that guy? And Peter says, I don't know who you're talking about. This girl says, but your, your, your speech gives you away. In other words, you talk like a redneck. I know you're a redneck, You're from Galilee. No, 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 I don't know what you're saying. He curses Jesus. There's no way. I'm one of his. And so the same guy that would defend Jesus for the Roman army wouldn't even confess to knowing him in front of a servant girl. Now, later on, out of this extreme embarrassment of denying the Lord, uh, he's actually restored by Jesus. He meets him there in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus restores him and establishes him as the leader of this New Church, and, and here's Peter. He's established as the leader of the church in Acts chapter one. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit to come down upon this room. There's 120 of them gathered together, and, and Peter struggles with patience. And he looks around. He goes, "Well, we've got 11 apostles, but Jesus called 12 because Judas is already uh, he's already off the scene, and so we are going to have to appoint somebody the 12th. And I've got a great idea. I mean, I know we saw Jesus go away and pray about these 12 guys." But how about instead we just draw straws? (laughs) Whoever's got the shortest straw, that's our next apostle. Surely that's a good way to do it. And wouldn't you know, that's what they do. That's how they pick the 12th apostle. They draw straws of all things, and they pick a guy named Matthias. I, I submit to you that in this case, Peter got out ahead of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit actually had someone different in mind to be the 12th apostle, a guy that they hadn't even met yet who at this time was actually persecuting the church. His name was Saul. He would go on to write almost half of our New Testament. Uh, The Apostle Paul was actually the one that I believe the Holy Spirit intended to be the 12th Apostle because we never see another thing mentioned about Matthias. And so I think about how many times I get out ahead of the Holy Spirit in my life. I get way ahead. Surely, Lord, you're behind this. Let's just go ahead and draw straws. This will be good enough. And yet, if we're not careful, we can outpace him instead of waiting on him. Now then, this same man who got out ahead of God, once he receives the power of the Holy Spirit there in Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit comes upon him, he is now a dynamic evangelist. He gives a whopper of an evangelistic message on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So much so that 3,000 people come to know Jesus that day. Unbelievable kind of an altar call. And this is the power of his evangelistic gift. And so many in church history would say once he received the Holy Spirit, Peter was like some kind of a superhuman. He didn't even make fleshly decisions. But those that say that haven't actually read uh, Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter are there in Antioch. And they're serving together. This is some dynamic church. When you've got Paul and Peter both serving in this one place And as they're there serving, Peter's been given this command by God to go out and be the apostle to the Gentiles. Go bring Gentile people in and show them the love of Christ. And they've got this booming young church, so much so that now the Jews in Jerusalem that were Christian Jews, they decide to come pay the church in Antioch a visit. They're going to make a little pit stop and see how things are going. And so these Jewish believers come into Antioch, and while they're there, Peter forgets how much he loves the Gentiles. He leaves and goes and just has dinner with the Jews only. He doesn't want to be seen with all these people that had been his friends and his family for however long they had been there. So it became so obvious that the Apostle Paul actually went up to him, and what he tells us in Galatians chapter 2 is that I rebuked Peter right to his face. you got to love that about the Apostle Paul. Because Peter's this big, brash fisherman guy, right? He's not afraid uh, to, to tell you where to go and how to do it. He's not afraid to punch you right in the nose. And, and Paul, from Bible history, we know he was not a very big guy. He was a little frail Jewish guy, yet he got right up in Peter's face and told him, look, what you're doing isn't right. You've forsaken the fellowship of the brethren. You're picking sides. And, and I want to say that to Peter's credit, he agreed. And he backed down. And he listened to what God was trying to do. And he took the rebuking well. So you see the growth that actually happens in the life of a guy that was such a gifted evangelist, so very impulsive, so very impatient. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was actually able to grow from that to the man that we see in his epistles back in First and Second Peter, where he actually says, look, you need to listen to the things that the Apostle Paul says. These things are Scripture. That's the growth that happens in a life when we trust in the Spirit. Now, for Simon Peter, he has a brother, Andrew. Andrew's name actually means manly. And so I'm sure that never got used in brotherly arguments. Hey, you're hearing, Mr. Hard Hearing, but I'm manly. right? So he and Simon were brothers. They were fishermen together. And we don't get a lot of input about Andrew other than this. He was known for bringing people to Jesus. He wasn't a gifted evangelist like his brother. He probably didn't have the charisma of his brother, but what he knew how to do was to bring people to the Lord, which by the way is just as important as being a gifted evangelist. In fact, so important that if it wasn't for Andrew being willing to use his gift for bringing people to the Lord, we wouldn't even have the apostle Peter. It was Andrew that brought his own brother to Jesus and says, I think we found the Messiah. This is the guy. And He's the one that made the formal introduction. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't have the gift of evangelism, if it's something you're not comfortable with talking to people, it doesn't mean you can't bring folks to Jesus. Now then for the next two, we have uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And so like Peter and Andrew, James and John were also uh, fishermen. They were commercial fishermen, and they worked for their dad. Uh, Zebedee was their father. Now, they apparently had a fairly successful commercial fishing business, and I say that because uh, both John and Peter were allowed access into the high priest's house at the trial of Jesus. They were the only two that got to be witnessed for this trial, which uh, tells us that they uh, probably had a successful enough fishing business that John was able to do a little bit of name-dropping. We're told that he was known by the high priest. And so the, what do the Jews in Jerusalem love? They love them some Galilean fish. So they probably bought some fish from Zebedee, their dad, and, and because of this, they were able to have access. Now, Jesus gives these two a nickname as well. He calls them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Uh, if you're going to get a nickname, by the way, this is one awesome nickname, way better than Rockhead. This sounds like some kind of tag team, doesn't it? Sons of Thunder. I mean, that's awesome. But he calls them this uh, not to make them the next great tag team, but actually to to give them a little bit of a hard time. Jesus is giving them a hard time because in Luke chapter 9, as the disciples are heading through Samaria, and by the way, if you're a Jew in that day, you would not want to go through Samaria. These were considered the outcasts. Uh, They were less than. And so for Jews, they try to keep themselves away from the unclean Samaritans. So much so that they would actually go around Samaria, across the Jordan River, just to avoid uh, this area that's in the middle of Israel to get to Jerusalem. They would try their best to avoid this area. But Jesus says, I must go through there. And so they follow him, they go through this area, and as they're uh, going through, the Samaritans reject them. They won't have anything to do with these Jews. Now, most likely, it's because they had been abusive to them all these years. The Jews hated them. So they're getting, really, what they'd sown back. Now, James and John have this great idea for Jesus, for these people who are rejecting them. They say, look, um, maybe we could go away and pray for these guys. No, they didn't say that at all. They, they actually say in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and smoke these guys? This is our great plan. We are going to smoke out all these people that want to reject us. And now you can see why these guys are the foundation of the church, right? I mean, how often do we get rejected as a church? You know what we're going to do? Smoke them, Lord. We tried. We sent out a mailer. They rejected us. How dare they? And so Jesus calls them, the sons of thunder, to actually give them a hard time, to remind them of their fiery personality, like, Like, you don't even know who you are. That's how Jesus responded. He said, you don't even know what kind of flesh you are. Like, you don't even know what you're talking about. And and by the way, as a side note, we should not be surprised at rejection as a church. It shouldn't come as a shock to us. And in fact, our response needs to be a little less fire, a little more prayer time. Spend some time praying for that neighbor who won't talk to you because you're a weirdo. Spend some time Loving on that co-worker that thinks you're odd because you won't partake in all the things they're partaking in. Next, we, we notice that they have a mother named Salome. So it's rare that we get an introduction to the mother of these disciples, but her we know. She followed along with them, and in following along with them, she has a great plan for the future of her sons. She has a vision for their ministry. She approaches Jesus and she says, Hey, Lord, how about you let my boys, James and John, sit at your right hand and your left hand as you establish your kingdom? What a great idea for mom, right? I want my boys to be successful. And yet Jesus responds and says, Do you even know the cup that they're going to have to drink? Like, Do you understand? I'm getting ready to consume the cup of wrath. That's what you're really asking for. And she didn't, of course, understand that. And so what we find is that James, uh, in fact, did uh, endure the cup of wrath in the the sense that he was the first apostle martyred. Herod Agrippa had him beheaded in Acts chapter 12. And interestingly, uh, his brother John was the only apostle not martyred. Now, that's not for a lack of trying. In fact, uh, Caesar Nero had John the apostle uh, dipped alive in hot oil. Uh, That's not a great way to go, but John didn't die. Which is why, by the way, John was the very first friar. The friar he was hot oil. Okay, look, y'all, you know, I got to wake up a little bit. It's Sunday morning, we got some blood going. There's coffee. We have coffee. So, so here we have John the Apostle is the only one that's not martyred, and he then became the writer of five different books in our New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, uh, three letters, first, second, and third John, and then also the last book in our New Testament. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So John is then refers to himself in his own gospel account, not by name, but instead as the apostle whom Jesus loved. I think that's interesting, and lots of people have written about this, and it seems like John's being very braggadocious. Like he's like, I'm going to write, I'm going to call myself the apostle who Jesus loved. That's who I am. Uh, but I would challenge you to think about it this way uh, here's John writing his gospel account in his early to mid 90s he's writing it some 30 years after the other three gospels are written by the way and as he's writing it he's he's able to look back on his life in amazement and go man i was a guy he called a son of thunder and look at look at things now i can't believe how jesus loved me he loved me in my broken and fallen and disastrous state i am i am the apostle who jesus Loved, and so I think he wrote it more in just amazement for his condition, and so only Jesus I put this up here for you. Only Jesus could take a son of thunder and turn him to the apostle of love. That's what John's known for throughout his letters. In fact, his his favorite speech to give. They would wheel John up there. He's probably in his nineties to these churches in Asia Minor, and, and and he was like a rock star at this point. He's the only apostle left alive. They'd wheel him up there on stage, and he would stand. And he would point out at the crowd and he'd say, little children, love one another. And then he would just sit back down. (laughs) Like, wait, you got a little more for us? Nope, that's it. In in fact, in in church history, they they would ask John, surely there's something else to your message. And he would say, no, if they get this, all the rest will take care of itself. They need to love one another. And that's the power of the transformation of the Holy Spirit. What Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, he says, Be ye not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The life of John the Apostle is one that has been transformed as his life was renewed. Now then the next two we have on here are Philip and Bartholomew. So uh, Philip was a pragmatist. He was one that looked at a situation for exactly what it was. Look, let's be practical about this thing. So where we see this come out first is in John chapter 6. And in this spot, Jesus is getting ready to to feed 5,000 people. By the way, that's 5,000 men, not including women and children. So the the scene probably looks more like 15,000 people. And Jesus gives a command that they're hungry, go and get them some bread. Okay, thank you, Jesus. What a a wonderful idea. This is when Philip pipes in. He looks at the situation and he says, uh, in verse 7, Philip answered him and says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone should have a little bit. Philip looks at this and goes, look, even 200 denarii worth of bread, a denarii at that time was a day's wages. 200 days wages wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd. It's going to take twenty-five dollars or $30,000 just to feed this group of people. And that's just for them to get a little peace. He was very practical about what he was looking at. And yet what he didn't understand was the provider that was there in front of him. And at the Last Supper, he has a similar kind of thing. He's trying to understand as Jesus is given this teaching there at the Last Supper, uh, there in John 14, I'll flip to the right just a little bit further, He's explaining the things that are to take place and the things that he's going to suffer and what's going to take place after this. And in John chapter 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. You're teaching all these things that are difficult for me to understand. Would you just show me the Father? Just show me the plans that, the, that you and the Father have. Show me what's going on and that's enough for me. You ever felt that way? Like, Lord, just show me what you have going on. Just paint the picture really clear. Mark it out on the road, and then I'm going to know what I'm supposed to do. Lord, show us the Father. But then in verse 9, Jesus responds to Philip, and he says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus' response was, look around. Look around, Philip. I've been doing all this work in your life. I've been showing you the way here and there, and at every step of the way, you've trusted in me, and I've led you to the next place. And this is so often what I have to remember. It's pay attention. Pay attention and look around to what God is up to all around me, and in doing so, we can actually see what the Father's up to. Now, like Andrew, what I, what I enjoy about Philip is he was always bringing people to Jesus. He was known for bringing others, and that's where we get our next person, uh, Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, he brings his friend, his buddy, to Jesus. <clears throat> and about Jesus, this is what he has to say uh, in verse 45 of John 1. Philip found Nathaniel, this is Bartholomew, same guy, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him, the one that Moses wrote about thousands of years ago. This is the Messiah, the guy. We found him, and he's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, is known as being a straight shooter. And this is his response. He says in verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of this little hole in the wall of Nazareth? Uh, I'll paint the picture in a way we can understand here in central Illinois. It would be like me telling you, we found the Messiah, he's in Martinsville. And you're like, what? Really? You found the Messiah's a blue streak? Like, we don't even know what that is. We're not, we're not sure either, but he's there. He, okay, I'm picking on Clark County. We found the Messiah. He's in Ashmore. Maybe that's easier for you. That's what he's essentially saying. This hole in the wall, small place, the only thing they've got to Quickie Mart. That's the town that we found the Messiah in. And Nathaniel's response is, "Can anything good really come from that place?" Now, Jesus then responds as he sees Nathaniel walking towards him. He says, "Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit." In other words, behold, here's an Israelite who calls it like he sees it. This is Nathanael. And and Nathanael answers him in verse 48, and he says, How do you know me? Jesus then responds in chapter 1 of John. He says, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you before you ever even had eyes for me. And by the way, this is us in our Christian journey. He sees us long before we ever recognize him. He has been guiding you and leading you when you had no idea he was even around. Now, Nathaniel's response to this is, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. This man who was a straight shooter was completely undone in the eyes of the king. Tough guys and straight shooters, when they get in front of the king of kings, the lord of lords, uh, they oftentimes are all in for Jesus. They're going to call it like they see it. They're going to stand up for what they believe in. And this is what we see out of Bartholomew or Nathaniel. Now then, our next pairing is Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. And so Thomas is also known as uh, the doubter. I would tell you that he's not only a doubter, he's also a skeptic. That's a great combination. You take uh, skepticism and then even better, Uh, He has pessimism rolled all into one. Thomas is a dandy of a guy. And he's also known as Didymus, the twin. We don't know who his twin is. But uh, I mentioned there he's a a pessimist. And we see his pessimism really come out in John chapter 11. So in John 11, uh, Jesus has gotten word that his buddy Lazarus is about to die. And so he's been asked to come and check on things and, and, and heal his friend Lazarus. But the reality is Lazarus is already dead. So they're traveling now for a guy that's already dead so that Jesus can supposedly heal him. And as they're on their way, all the disciples are reminded, we're going to a town of Bethany, which is located just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, where at this point in Jesus' ministry, everybody in Jerusalem that's in power wants him dead. And what that means for the disciples is if they want Jesus dead, that means they're going to want us dead too. Not a great idea. And so they're continually trying to talk Jesus out of going to Bethany to heal Lazarus because they don't want to die. Now then in uh, chapter 11, this is what Thomas finally has to say about this situation in verse 16. And then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go with him that we may die with him. That's, That's his take on this thing. We might as well go with him. We might as well die with him. Better than dying someplace else, I guess. So let's go with him and just die with him. So he has uh, doubts, right? We we know him as the doubter. And his doubting plays out even in John 14. Uh, He he wants to know where is Jesus going. This is the thing I take away from Thomas that I like. In the middle of his doubting and his pessimism and his skepticism, what he knows for sure is I want to be where Jesus is. Even if I don't understand it completely. Even if I don't believe everything he's telling me completely. I know this. I want to be where he is. And where I I get that is John chapter 14 verse 5. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? I don't know where you're going, but how can I know the way? And Jesus goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas just wants to be where he's at. And so I, I you, if you're a person that struggles with belief and pessimism and skepticism, I want to encourage you in this, just be around Jesus. Just, just be and desire to be wherever he is. Now in John chapter 20, he's the one who famously said, I'm not going to believe Jesus is resurrected unless I can see the holes in his hands and, and and touch them for myself. And in John chapter 20 verse 28, as Jesus appears before him after he's resurrected, Thomas's response to seeing the hands, the holes in his hand is my lord and my god. My lord and my god. That's his answer when he sees Jesus. And yet what Jesus said is blessed are you because you believe, but blessed are those who don't see and yet they still believe. And that's really the story of the Christian life right there. Blessed are you who do not see and yet you still believe. You have a thing called faith, right? This belief that God is going to work all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How? I have no idea. That's really what Thomas is saying. How do we know? We don't know. We just know that he's going to work it all out. We've seen it too many times in our lives to know that he's going to work all things out. Now Thomas is here paired together with Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, I've Mentioned a couple different times because he's the writer of our gospel account. But just in short summary, uh, Matthew was a traitor. He was a traitor to his people. He was a Jew now serving Rome as a tax collector. He was a traitor to his family. They had high hopes for Matthew. His birth name was actually Levi, which tells us they were hoping he'd be a priest. And instead, he became a tax collector. It couldn't get more polar opposite. So he was hated by all of his brethren. And yet, when Jesus calls, Matthew leaves everything behind. He leaves money, he leaves power, he leaves his status, and he walks away to follow Jesus. And I shared with you a few weeks ago that as Jesus looked at Matthew, he didn't see a Levi, which was a sign of his disappointment, all the things that he could have been in his life, but instead he called him Matthew, which means gift of Yahweh. So I don't see disappointment In in, in failure, I see a gift of Yahweh. Now then, continuing on to the next two, we have James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus. We know uh, very little about James, other than he is uh, sometimes called James the Less. We're not sure if that's because there's less said about him, Or more likely, it's because uh, he was shorter than the other guy named James. So Jesus said, you know what, to make this easy, we're going to call you James, and you, James, the shorter guy than that guy. So again, Jesus is making it simple. He likes a good nickname. Uh, So we don't know a whole lot about him, but we do know that he was one of the 12 apostles. And then we find Thaddeus, who's also called Judas. Uh, When the Bible refers to him as Judas, they're careful to, in parentheses, put not Iscariot. I want to make it very clear he's not the same Judas that betrayed Jesus. But in John chapter 14 is where we see uh, Thaddeus mentioned. Here he is called Judas, not Iscariot. Verse 22, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So his question is, why is it you're showing us your kingdom? You're showing us who you are, but you're not showing the world at large, who you are? Now the answer is uh, interesting. He says in verse 23, Jesus replied to him and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Thaddeus's question was actually, Lord, why don't you just set up your kingdom right now, kick these Romans out, we can rule and reign with you and we can have this whole thing done with. How many of you have thought that about Jesus? Jesus, why don't you just come back now, start this whole thing all over again, hit the reset key, and then we'll rule and reign with you. What a great plan. But Jesus says, here's what I'm going to tell you we're going to do. If you love me, I am going to come and set my kingdom up in you. You are going to be my kingdom in the flesh. I'm going to let my kingdom play out in your lives, which is why when Paul writes To the Colossians, he says this is a mystery. They didn't get this in the Old Testament. You're still struggling with this now. But it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what he says in Colossians 1. It's actually Christ existing in you. This is the hope of a glory, of a kingdom to come. So as you go and you interact, the reality is the kingdom of God is expanding. He's taking it everywhere as he changes the hearts of people. Now then... For these uh, next two, the the final two, we have Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Simon the Canaanite is also called uh, in some accounts as Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were actually a political party, and their uh, goal was to overthrow Rome, Uh, not through prayer, but instead through force. Zealots were known to carry uh, little daggers with them, And what they would do is if they would catch a Roman official or someone of Roman importance alone, they would take out their dagger and they would stab them and leave them to bleed to death along the roadside somewhere. They were determined to overthrow Rome any way they could, including by force. And now this is one of the 12 that are included in the group that Jesus has called as his apostles. Now you think about this man and his political views and his beliefs, and then He's in the same group of 12 as Matthew, a Roman traitor, a guy that, that went to be a part of Rome. So these two guys are coming from completely different political views and sides of things. And so you have to ask yourself, how in the world does this work? And the reality is, if they talk politics, it doesn't. If they start talking politics, this whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket. I mean, in a hurry, it's going down like the Hindenburg. So the truth is, they have to communicate about Jesus. That Jesus is the common ground. That Jesus is the place that they focus on, that they look to. And this is important for us as we go out and we interact with people that have different political views than we do. They're going to want to express them. And the reality is, if, if you're a more mature Christian, here's how you're to handle it. Not say anything. Ignore it. You're to let it literally roll off your back because the only thing that adding a political fuel to this thing is going to do is create an even bigger fire. And that's precisely what we see with these 12 apostles, that, that they were to come together with the focus to be on Jesus and not on politics. Lastly, we have Judas Iscariot, who's called the traitor. Now, Judas was a guy that was out for his own gain. In every way, he was looking to advance uh, himself. That was really the issue at the heart of Judas, hence his betrayal. His betrayal didn't have as much to do with his hatred for Jesus, but many believe, and I would agree, that he was actually hoping that by calling Jesus out, it would force him into a position where he'd have to declare himself as the king. So if he's in a spot where he's got to show that he's the Messiah, he's the ruler of the world, God in the flesh, then he's going to make his kingdom happen right now. and guess what? I'm one of the 12. That means I get a pretty high position too. Uh, not to mention, I get a few bucks in the process. So this is Judas's great master plan, and yet when you think about him and his life, Jesus went away and he prayed for an entire evening and he picked Judas. He selected intentionally Judas. He gave him the same power that he gave these other disciples as he called them to be apostles. He even made Judas the treasurer. He he didn't give the money bag to Matthew because they didn't trust Matthew. He was in with the Romans. Let's give it to that guy. He seems trustworthy. They give the money bag to Judas, of all people. And then at the Last Supper, the scene was uh, Judas actually positioned to the left of Jesus. That's the position in a feast of honor. That person sitting to the left of the host would have shared the bowl with the host, a position of honor and respect. And Jesus set him there on purpose. He even addresses him in their final confrontation in Matthew 26, verse 50, as Judas is coming to betray him there in the Garden of Gethsemane to give him over to the Romans. He looks at him and he says, Friend, why have you come? He looks into the eyes of his deceiver and calls him friend. Can you imagine the love, the affection that Jesus must have for Judas to call him friend? And there is no sadder story to me, and maybe the entire Bible for sure, the New Testament, than this, that Judas walked away from being shown light after light after light, and he walked away. He turned his back on Jesus. And before I throw too many stones at Judas, uh, the truth is, if I have to look at my own life, I see time after time after time I walked away. I turned my back. And so there's a whole lot of Judas in me that I find has to oftentimes get worked out and flushed out. And, and here's the reality. When Jesus looks at him and calls him friend, he wasn't interested in the work that Judas could do. He wasn't interested in the in, in his money or even in his time. He was only interested in his heart. That's all he's ever concerned with, with you and I. He doesn't care about our past. He doesn't care about what we could give or do. He only cares about our heart. And so to wrap up this uh, overview of this list before we head into the the missionary discourse next week, I want to just look at why or what is it about this group of 12 men that is so special. And the first thing is, uh, they were remarkable, and that they were unremarkable. That they were decidedly human, completely flawed, and extremely diverse. This is the group that he brought together. But they were also just right for Jesus to be able to use. Secondly, they were teachable. That's important. We saw that in the life of Peter, that that this guy that went back and forth, even at the end of his life, he was he was willing to be teachable because this thing is a marathon, not a sprint. And so the good thing about the testings of the Lord is they're not multiple choice. They're pass fail. You either pass the test or you don't pass the test. Now, the bad news is if you didn't pass it, guess what? You get to take it over again until you pass it. Now, here's the blessing. Once you pass that test, there's another test coming. Praise the Lord. We got another test coming right around the corner, but it's a marathon, not a sprint thirdly, they were empowered by God. This is the reality for us in our lives, that there is no work we can do unless it is under the power of the Holy Spirit, unless they are given the power by God to do any kind of work, they can do nothing. Where God guides, God provides. Or another way to say it, I like this one too, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. Now, if you feel like you don't have the tools and the the resources you need to go and have any kind of ministry or speak into anybody's life, here's the thing. If God put you in that spot, he is going to give you what you need to speak into their life. He's going to give it to you. It's a promise. Fourthly, they stayed close to Jesus. They stuck with him. They stayed close to him. Even if they didn't understand what in the world they were talking about. And and this is why I want to encourage you in your daily Bible reading, if you don't have a stinking clue what you're reading, I would encourage you, keep reading. Keep reading it. Because if you stick close to Jesus, he's close with you. He is on every single page. Stay close to him. And in doing so, these men had success. I'm going to go one last spot in Scripture. Acts chapter 4. This is Peter and John being questioned by the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is this great council of Jews, 70 Jews. These guys were the religious elite. They were the best of the best, the top guys. And they were looking at uh, Peter and John, and they were questioning them. And in verse 13 of chapter 4, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled. They looked at these two guys, these two Galilean fishermen, Redneck, central Illinois guys are like, what in the world? These guys are uneducated, untrained, and yet they marveled. And they marveled. And the only thing that they could explain, their, their understanding of the scriptures, their ability to preach and have people convert and come to know Jesus, the only explanation they have is at the end of this verse, and then they realized they had been with Jesus. This is the, this is the common ground that they had. They had been with Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is stick with Jesus. Stay close to him. Lastly, they had community. Together, as they were a group of 12, what they had together was a cohesive community. Were they different? Absolutely. But the thing they had in common is they had a family unit that believed in Jesus. And what I have seen in my uh, 41 years of life is not even that slowly, at a rapid pace, what Satan is looking to do is to destroy community. He is looking to destroy the family unit. When I was eight, nine years old, every Sunday after church, my family gathered together at my great-grandmother's house. That's just where we went. It's where we went. It was no question, we were there. And yet, in the course of time, that fell away, and families move apart. And I watch as Satan does this over and over again in family units and structures. He's looking to find any crack, any fissure that he can to bust and break things apart because here's the thing, he wants to isolate us. He wants to isolate us, and what Proverbs says is that the man who isolates himself rages against himself. So you talk about an angry group of people, and you want to know why? It's isolation. It's isolation. And there's something far more dangerous that's happening out there, something way more invasive than COVID-19, and it's called isolation. There are more people dying from isolation, dying spiritual deaths from isolation than any kind of pandemic. That's the real thing that's sinister and at play beneath this. He wants to destroy this and isolate us. But I will tell you, I see something else taking place too. I see a hunger and a thirst by people for fellowship, for a belonging, for a, a place that they can call home, some place that we can link back up together. And so, as I saw this in my you know uh, early years of what family units were to, to look like, later generations, uh, you know, generation Y and Z and millennials and all them, they're looking at this thing going, "What in the world? This is there's something wrong here." Like, I, I desire to have family, I desire to have belonging, and yet I, I don't see it taking place anywhere. And so oftentimes young people will join any group they can just to find some sense of community, and yet each time they do, it rolls up void because there's no substance to it, because there is no God except themselves. And so the reality is what, what they what they need, what our hope is, our prayer is, is that they will find their way to here to his church, and this is how Jesus wants to grow his church is through community, through family. So that when you're in the workplace and when you're in the study group and when you're interacting with folks, they wonder how do you operate with confidence? How do you operate with your head held high? Why do you have that look about you? What's different about you? And the reality is, you have a family that's got your back, you have a community that's come together. And so you can operate being you, being who God created you to be, and yet an even better version of you because Jesus is in this thing. That's what church is supposed to be. That's what fellowshipping together is supposed to look like, rooted and grounded in the word of God. That as we come together, this is the way we are supposed to interact with one another. It's through community that made them special. And so the message that I was supposed to give to you today was simple. This is what the Lord gave me two days ago. He said to tell them, in Jesus' name, I love you. In Jesus' name, you belong. In Jesus' name, you're home. In Jesus' name, amen. The amen is so be it. That's what the word means. And so, Father, thank you for the message that you had carved out today for the church. Lord, seemingly fly over territory um, that, that we could have just moved on into the next passage and yet you wanted to call it out specifically today because you want to put an emphasis on community and family and belonging to those that have felt that there is a deep sense of something wrong and sinister and that's because it is the spirit of this age wants to pick us off one at a time. Lord, thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. That's you in us is greater than anything coming for us on the outside. Lord, we are stronger together because of you, our cornerstone, and we praise you for that. Lord Jesus, we welcome you here as Jake and Michaela play the final song. I pray that if there is anyone that doesn't know you, that they would want to be a part of this Community that is Jesus, you are the community. It centralizes on you. It focuses on you. And without you, we have nothing, Lord. But with you, we have everything. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you
1: please stand? church says amen
0: thank you everybody for coming out pray you guys have a good week if you need to catch up with me at all i'll be up front if not god bless you guys have a good week